Bruce Hornsby on SAFM with The Way It Is. Mm, is it just the way it is? Just before the break, we had, uh, you know, the grim facts and figures and statistics and, uh, uh, you know, our social ills as a country, corruption, race relations, unemployment, you name it. And uh, the question is, will it always be exactly as it is? Is there no hope for better? Can we do more? Well, Votes have been cast, my friend. Decisions have been made and our future awaits us as we look at the scoreboard and see the tally and uh, the votes are coming in. We just wait with bated breath to see what the outcome will be. What exactly does the future look like? What does it have in store for us? We're joined by Director of Research at our World Social Economic Research Institute. Angelo Fick uh, joins us now to share his insight. Angelo, very good uh, afternoon to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon to you and to your listeners. Mm. You know, it's a pity. I don't think you were privy to the conversation that we had a little bit earlier. But uh, very quickly, uh, we had Butzang Muila with us and he just took us uh, down memory lane to uh, the euphoria of 1994 and perhaps where the, f- the wheels fell off and where we find ourselves today. So I suppose you now have to answer to something you never heard a little bit earlier. My question is, you know, when we look at status quo in the country, you know, bearing in mind everything that's going wrong, is all lost? Well, I'm not one of those people who looks back with nostalgia at 1994. I mean, I was 20 when I voted for the first time, and I agree that the 2019 that we sit in is certainly not the 2019 that, if you'd asked us in 1994 what we envisioned, that this would be it, that we would be the most unequal society on earth, that we would have the femicide that we have, that we would be mired in state corruption and non-delivery of resources, that our children would, 78% of our 10-year-olds would be, you know, illiterate, unable to read or write in any language whatsoever. None of that would have been there. But I don't think all is lost at all. The fact that we have people engaged, and I don't just mean in the election, that we have people politically engaged even outside of the electoral system. We have the landless people movement, we have Abashlali, we have Reclaim Cape Town, we have spaces across the uh, the rural parts of South Africa where people are engaged in politics, in fighting for what they want, uh, is a sign of the health of a certain kind of understanding of the importance of politics in a democratic society. And so I don't think all is lost. I think you know, we've had a horrible time in our most recent past and it is going to be the test of our courage whether we can fix ourselves and fix the society we live in. Mm. Jack Pagati contributes uh, via Twitter. He says the following, we are far apart. The FF plus getting 3% of the votes thus far. If you pull it over the entire nation of 57M, you have uh, 1.7 million voters and supporters of racist ideals. 1.7 million of an army of black hating racists. Our legitimate national defense force with reservists don't tally 1.7 million. Uh, Jack, they're very pessimistic when it comes to state of affairs and I suppose that looking at uh, the, 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 the elections that have just taken place, what would you say? I think that there is certainly need for us to do, and I'm here going to use the phrase of Chief Justice Bukwim Bukwim, deep and profound introspection and ask ourselves very, very tough questions. I think for 25 years uh, we have assumed that we're on a certain path. If you look at what happens in the social spaces of South Africa, and I don't mean social media, I mean in social spaces where people live and shop and work and bank and do the things that they do every day, um, we shouldn't be surprised that a party that is so separatist, so ideal, 
ideally focused on interests of white people uh, should have the increase that it is having in this particular election. The future, though, is something that we have to make in this moment. If we are unhappy with where we are now, we need to look at the last 25 years, not just say everything is the consequence of what happened in apartheid, and ask ourselves, what are the consequences of colonialism in apartheid? And what are the consequences of us having built this society over the last 25 years? Because we didn't just stop in 1994 and in 2019 continue to deal with those things. We made new problems. There have been some gains. And so if we look to the next 25 years, there are some challenges that exist in this moment that the political class that governs this country is ill-equipped to engage, precisely because they're people my age and older. I'm 46. Uh, the majority of people in this country under the age of 35, they're going to live into the t second half of the century. Global climate change and its consequences of food insecurity, water insecurity and political instability because of mass migrations of people across the planet, those are issues that our children and our children's children are going to deal with. People who are 20 and 30 years old today are going to be in their old age in that second half of this year of the century. And so they need to look very carefully about the challenges that are already looming now that they are going to have to face and make political choices that means that the people who are going to be dead then are not determining the terrain on which they will have to scrabble away for their lives. Mm. You know, when we talk about the future and what it has in store for us as a nation, it's very interesting because, um, you know, black people and hard, uh, white people uh, are feeling very hard done by, you know, two sides of the same coin. But um, as much as black South Africans will lament their uh, state of affairs, white South Africans are feeling very marginalized as well. I suppose my question to you then is, um, you know, from what you perceive, even the conversations that you have with white South Africans, do they have a future in South Africa? And if so, do they feel that they have that future? So I think here we all need to take some responsibility for how we relate to this country. Um, you know, for the majority of the 58 million people who live here, there is no option B. Um, and that includes both white and black South Africans. They're, you know, not in the upper middle classes. They don't have second passports. They can't just decamp. Uh, for other reasons, they may be in those positions, but have significant you know, kind of affective investment in being in South Africa because it's where they've buried their dead, it's where their families live, it's where they love living. And so we need to get to a point where we say, even if we have severe political differences, it's all of us together or none of us at all. They're going to be people who are disaffected and they will have to exercise the rights that they have within a constitutional democracy. But if one is interested in making a future for people, and this is part of a certain kind of ethical human duty. Uh, if we think of people, you know, the lesson that we get taught often as children, which is leave a room either the same as you found it or better. So don't leave it dirtier. We have a duty to people who come after us. It is simply an ethical human duty to either leave the planet better or to leave it as we found it. We are it seems, on track to leave it worse off than we found it. Mm. And in some senses, in South Africa, those challenges are often eclipsed by issues of racism, issues of femicide, which are not unrelated to our attitude towards the planet as a whole. And I think it is important for us to bear in mind that white and black South Africans have a duty to their own descendants, to the people that they raise as children, that the future for those children must be better. And some of that is the consequence of having to unlearn old patterns, old senses of assumption of what is due to us, and having to learn new ways of getting along. Because the idea that you can retreat to a sort of isolated space in which only people like you get to live, that's not going to be possible because we are already being overwhelmed by the consequences of human-created climate change. And people who deny this are simply denying what 
thousands of scientists are doing mm. through the IPCC. In terms of racism, there's work we didn't do in the 90s. Instead of just throwing our hands up and retreating to our corners, we now need to do that work with our children. And here, I think the state plays a very important role in compulsory basic education. It is not enough to imagine and dream for a non-racist state. I think it is incumbent on this state to denazify. In other words, have active anti-racist education so that we have critically literate citizens who cannot assume and behave in ways that we have in this country that give us the racisms that we see, that we have active anti-sexist education so that we have a respect for women and children, particularly for women in a femicidal country. Because it is not simply a matter of punishing people who are guilty of this. It's asking ourselves the tough questions of why, what are the deep roots of these problems and how do we deal with the problems by dealing not with symptoms but with roots. And that I think is tough work for all of us to do. Mm. And all of us do need to do it because it isn't just the work of some people. It's not just government's work or an MP's work or you know Umfundisi's work. It is the work of every citizen in this country. Every adult must take responsibility for every other adult and every child because we are running out of time. We don't have another 25 years. We can't keep thinking we're the miraculous society that got through 1994 and we'll just mm. keep winning at that game. And that, I think, is something that ordinary South Africans keep telling us every day when they're protesting, when they're indicating how we're failing them. Because we're failing together as a society, retreating behind high walls and tinted windows. That's not a future. It's not sustainable. Now, you know, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, without wanting you to now go into the realm of the prophetic or look into a crystal ball, I, I'd, I'd like us to share a little bit about where to from here as a society. You've already touched on one or two things that we need to start working on as a matter of urgency, but I'd like to also discuss the immediate aftermath of these elections, however um, uh, direction or whichever direction that we take, whichever the pe- uh, direction that the pendulum swings in, we'd have to speak about what we still need to do post these elections. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, where to from here? SAFM leading the conversation. All right, we continue in our throw forward section. Just before uh, this uh, particular sweep, we uh, took a throwback Thursday where we looked at how far we've come since 1994. Now we're throwing forward from these polls to the next. What needs to be done? What may the future have in store for us? We're joined by Anglo Ficke, who's an educated guest we're going to tap into now because it is a game of speculation at the moment. We are looking at the boards and we are uh, sort of trying to assess which direction things will go, how will Gaudeng turn out, how credible were these elections with all the irregularities that people are are flagging at the moment. But Angela, I'd like to find out from you, you know, in your opinion, what have these polls revealed the most about our country? So I think firstly, let's look at the conducting of the polls. I think what it's revealed on the one hand is that ordinary South Africans are quite happy in the majority to go out and behave like good citizens and vote um, without too much drama and too much interference. Um, when we look at the 22, more than 22,000 voting stations, we really had irregularities and problems at the minority of those, and I really mean the smallest of minorities. If this happened at 100 stations, these irregularities, there would still be 100 of 20, more than 22,000 voting stations. And while those irregularities would be highly unacceptable and need to be intervened at, we shouldn't call the entire process into uh, question simply because of those irregularities, principally because of the way in which elections work as mathematical exercises and statistical exercises. 
Uh, in terms of the way in which parties have behaved, we've for the most part seen peaceful and fair electioneering. We haven't seen people, you know, behave quite appallingly. Much of the violence and inappropriate conduct has been intra-party. And then my last m remark on this is that I think um, the true test of whether or not we continue to commit to democratic governance in a constitutional order with regular elections is whether the parties who do not perform well do what is necessary to accept the results and if they question the results, whether they follow the legal route in questioning those results or whether they simply become disaffected voices in the body politic. Mm -hmm. Before we discuss where to from here, we have a call from Dumsani who's calling us from Johannesburg. He'd like to weigh in on our discussion. Dumsani, a warm welcome to you. Thank you very much for your contribution. What would you like to say? Challenge about how most people are perpetrating thoughts of uh, man-made global warming. Um, there are several instances where scientists have said, my name was recommended by the artist, and I said I was against the published and they wanted to continue. Mm. So to have the notion that currently uh, the, 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 the warming we are experiencing is because of mankind, to me, is... Uh, quite so, so, for example, there are two forms of warming. There's global warming because of carbon dioxide and other warming than the atmosphere, which are mm -hmm. for, for present, uh, politically or not, they went and chose just carbon dioxide. Why not the other five? So that's the first question that has not been answered. Yeah. And then the second thing is, um, the current warming is attributed to how warm the sun is. So when you go up in the atmosphere, it's slightly colder than what it is in the ground. So, mm -hmm. so the science there, to some extent, must say this. Oh dear, Dumsani, I, I tried to extend um, you know the, the amount of time that we put on your call just so I can get the gist of what you're trying to say. The line not doing this conversation justice. I'm afraid I'm going to have to let you go. But Angelo, very uh, quickly, Dumsani just speaking about, I suppose, the science and the politics behind global warming. This is something that you touched on and you did quite say that this is something that should be on the agenda as far as you're concerned when it comes to the trajectory of this country, of this nation. This is something that should be on the political agenda. But Perhaps you can uh, respond to Dumsani briefly, but also touch on uh, the question of where to from here. What are some of those fundamentals that we really need to look out for as a country if we are to change the story um, post these elections? So on the issue of global climate change, um, this is not about what United Nations politicians have to say. This is what thousands of physicists, chemists, biologists, zoologists and various other people have been saying from their observations in terms of species migration, species relocation, in terms of measurements uh, in ice cores that can take you through the ambient temperature on the Earth through 10 to 50,000 years uh, by looking at what they do on glaciers uh, in Greenland, in the Himalayas. This is a variety of people from a variety of scientific disciplines who have all come to the conclusion that if you measure climate change shifts over the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution of Western and Northwestern Europe, and you compare it with the record of what has happened before, you see a marked shift 
in the concentration of greenhouse gases. And mm-hmm. so those consequences are beginning to be seen. So this is also for me about scientific literacy in South Africa. I think, and I'm saying this because I've just listened to not the caller, but to a different scene in which people were asking questions in which they didn't seem to understand the fundamentals of statistics and extrapolation. Um, it's important for us to work at improving our education system. So I'm going to slide into mm. what do we do now. Mm-hmm. I think we sit in a country where, as I said, up to 78 or 80 percent of 10-year-olds cannot read in any language whatsoever and they can't write either. That tells me that there is a catastrophe coming because eight years from now, those people are going to be 18 years old and they're going to have to find ways in the post-school system of trying to make lives. And those lives are not just lives of economic activity. Those are lives as civic actors in the world. They need to be able to understand the world in scientific and mathematical terms. They need to be able to read documents and understand them, whether they're contracts with Mm. supermarkets or banks. So intervention in education is absolutely crucial. We are in what they call in war situations, triage mode. We need to rescue the people who can be rescued. We need to intervene urgently because the future of the society's stability depends on having people who are literate and educated. And I don't mean that as a snobbery. It is an absolutely essential element because we're not going to fix the problems that face us in this society if people are not able to read and understand the world in scientific terms. We don't all have to be scientists, but we all have to have a certain kind of mathematical literacy to understand this. And so the second thing that I think needs to happen is we need to learn that politicking and politics is the duty of citizens beyond merely electoral process. Mm -hmm. We need to hold our politicians to account in the five years in between elections and our poorest communities are best at teaching us how to do this. They have been engaging the system and seeing how it fails year on year for almost 20 years. And by the time they get to what they call disruptive protests, by the time you see tires burning and people throwing stones, those people have been unhappy and agitating the system legitimately for up to 10 or 15 years. Mm. We need to fix that. the the most vulnerable people of the society cannot be blamed for the failures of people who are paid by them up to 1.2 million per member of parliament per year for not doing their jobs and so holding people to account is crucial and that means all of us have to start one supporting our systems and our organs and institutions of state that means supporting the judiciary very important judgments have been won by the poor in the constitutional court against government failure it is taking Mm -hmm. serious interest in news media and insisting that news media be even better than it currently is because that's another issue information needs to be reliable and thirdly we need to stop simply have colors of political parties as our brands and acting against other people who are not supporting the same political party as if they're enemies. They are all citizens and co-workers in this project called the Republic of South Africa. Mm -hmm. We will disagree profoundly with one another on policy issues, but we must continue to respect one another as human beings. The visions that come out of the Freedom Charter, the visions that come out of the Constitution, the vision that comes out of the struggle against apartheid was a struggle for the full humanity of black people. It would be tragic if we do not extend that full humanity struggle to everyone in this society whether or not they were participants in that struggle for freedom from apartheid. We must affirm one another's humanity because it's only by being people through other people that we are fully people. I couldn't agree with you more. Here, here. Mr. Fick, always a pleasure. Thank you very much for your time and your contribution. Very sobering words there and inspiring indeed.